Once upon a time, a humble merchant family lived in a walled city of an ancient kingdom. The city was set on a prominent overlook. Below was a lush valley and beautiful forests and streams. The king of this small city was a renowned builder, and his city was known far and wide as an architectural gem. The family worked hard to survive, but they counted it a joy to live in such a beautiful city. But their city was no safe place. Armies occasionally attacked the gates, the walls were smashed, towers were from time to time toppled, the city, or portions of it at least, were torched. And on occasion there was an earthquake that would crumble other parts of the city. And then there was the king himself. He liked to level portions of the city on occasion in order to rebuild it better. The merchant couple despised this habit, and they complained about it a lot. No, not again. The city was perfect. It's taken us so long to get to this place. It was so beautiful, we liked it just like it was, and here he goes again, knocking down places so he can build them again. Why must the king do this? If we liken God's salvation purposes to this story, many attacks and disasters have assaulted God's city through the ages, but God keeps building. Indeed, there have been times when God Himself has labored for ages to establish His city, only to tear it down. But He keeps building. After Adam and Eve sinned against the Lord in the garden, God set in motion a plan to redeem His people from the curse of sin. And that plan included the eventual erection of an eternal city where we could dwell once again in God's presence. As we've traced God's plan of redemption over these several weeks, we've seen His operation proceed through first the people as He chose Adam and to work His saving purposes through the line of Seth leading down to Noah and then to Shem, his son, and then the choice of Abraham and the covenant with David, God continually pointing us to this people. And then secondly, a place. A unique place that God would establish for the outworking of his saving purposes. We've noted this several weeks now. But Deuteronomy chapter 12, you will seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes. He will put His name there. He will make His habitation there. And there you may go. And there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God. You will come to this place that the Lord your God will choose to make His name there. And there you will bring all these sacrifices that I command. At that place, there, there, you shall do all that I am commanding you. In that place, pointing his people there to this city, to this location. God's blueprint has been the story of God gathering his people to him and dwelling among them. 
God calls and speaks with Abraham. There is a promise of a people. There is a promise of a land. Always drawing them here and now in Deuteronomy 12 to this place. And we've looked also at 2 Chronicles 6, 5 and 6, where Solomon quotes God's promise to David. Since the day that I brought my people out of the land of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there, and I chose no man as prince over my people Israel, but I have chosen Jerusalem. He could almost say, but now. That's changed. I have chosen this city. I have chosen Jerusalem, that my name may be there. And I have chosen David to be over my people Israel. Two weeks ago when we last chased this concept biblically we looked at second chronicles 7 and verse 1 as soon as solomon finished his prayer at the dedication of the temple fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the lord filled the temple there in that city at that place god demonstrating his approval of the location, his approval of his people, his approval of this sacrifice by sending fire there to consume that sacrifice. And notice again, the glory of the Lord filled the temple on Mount Moriah. So now God dwelling with his people here to this place, Israel will come to worship. They will be drawn to this place. They will seek the Lord, come into His presence there on His terms, seeking His will and His purposes, seeking purification from sin as they come into His holy presence there on this hill that He has identified through centuries of providential direction. Here. Glory rests on the mountaintop and Israel sings. She worships this day at the temple provided by Solomon's sacrificial gifts. She eats and feeds in God's presence and then as Israel returns home rejoicing, all is calm and all is bright. Glory rests on the mountaintop and Israel sings. But this glorious moment in salvation history is soon to be overwhelmed by deep darkness. All that God has established, all that has been gained over 1,600, essentially 1,600 years, from the calling of Abraham to the location of this place, bringing God's people right here, All of that is about to be lost. It's to be crumbled and toppled. God chooses Israel as His holy people. He has chosen her to approach Him on His terms. We bring into our understanding our fairly recent series through the book of Leviticus. Just think of the whole process of God bringing His people to purification that they might stand in His presence. We think of the Day of Atonement this purity received in the presence of God with the high priest only behind the veil one time a year, taking out of that place, in a sense symbolically, the wickedness and the sin of God's people, this careful approach to God at this hill. 
this place was to be a light to the nations as well. God drew his people here, but it was to be a light on a hill that would draw the nations to God and to his holiness. In this whole plan, Israel proved unfaithful to God. It's unimaginable with all that God has done, but she begins to worship false gods. God sent warning after warning through the prophets who pleaded with Israel to turn from her sin, to serve God in faithfulness, one after another coming and warning. Captivity will be the end of this. If you don't come back to God, this place has been established as a light to the nations, as the source of your joy as you enter God's presence here. Come back to the Lord. And I don't know that it was a conscious thought on Israel's part, but in a sense, they just said, no way. It's not going to happen. God has brought us here as his chosen people, his elect nation, to this spot through all of these centuries and generations of time. God is not going to break down this situation. And they came to count on who they were, not on the God that they were called to worship. And as they began to worship other gods, the inevitable came. In 605 B.C., the Babylonian Empire came in and took captive many of the leaders, the intelligentsia, those with greatest skills. They took them away to Babylon and resettled them there. There was a lot of resistance, particularly in the city of Jerusalem. And so it took Babylon some time to actually conquer the whole land. But in 597 B.C., the prophet Ezekiel, along with his wife, King Jehoiachin, and 10,000 other Israelites formed a second wave of Israelites captured in the land and taken to Babylon. For the next 11 years, Ezekiel the prophet, while that city of Jerusalem still stood, for these next 11 years, he prophesied God's pending judgment upon the nation. And false prophets continued to step forward and tell the people exactly what they wanted to hear. God will not turn his back on this place. It has been established as his place. He will protect us as his people. He will not take us into captivity. And all the people said, Amen and Amen. That fits God's promise. That's what He will do. We know that He will protect us. But Ezekiel kept coming back and saying, no, He won't. You must come back to Him in repentance, but the judgment has fallen. God will crush this place. This holy site is going down. The leaders of Israel, the priests of Israel, the people of Israel were living in utter rebellion against God. And this would be the end. So Ezekiel prophesies for these 11 years until 586 B.C. when Babylon, in fact, destroys and takes all captive the Israelites that they want to bring with them, leaving just a few in the land. So getting a picture of Ezekiel, and I invite you to chapter 8, if you'll turn there. Ezekiel chapter 8 of his prophecy, just getting a sense of where he's living. He's in Babylon now as he writes. 
He's in that 11-year period where we come to this point in the book as he speaks about the judgment that is coming upon Jerusalem. In chapter 1, he has a vision of God on his throne. We don't have the time to read that today, but in that vision, God's glorious shining presence is seated on a throne and under which, and I'll tell you, this is, this is strange writing. It's visionary, eschatological writing. That it, it is predicting what is to come, and it's very bizarre, honestly, as you look at it. You, you read it and you say, what on earth is he seeing? What he's seeing is sending a message to us according to this style of writing. And it's, it is very strange. But God is seen seated on a throne in blazing glory in this vision that he receives in Babylon. But with God are these cherubim. The plural for cherub and the im, the I am, is from the Hebrew idea, so we're saying it properly. Cherubim, the plural cherubs, these angelic creatures. And you look at them, they sound hideous. They got four heads, four faces. They have these wheels next to them. And it's a wheel inside of a wheel which is spinning either dire- all four directions. And it's got eyes that are covering it. And they have wings with eyes under the wings. And you just say, they would just scare the living daylights out of somebody. Did Ezekiel see this when he was three years old in a nightmare? How is this glorious? But the beauty of this, as Ezekiel writes of it, is he just keeps saying like unto, like unto this, like unto that, almost like this. I could describe it sort of this way. He can't find words to describe the glory and the splendor of these creatures. So these cherubs with four faces and the wheels standing next to them, wherever those wheels spin and move, they move. They never have to turn because they got heads in each direction. But I think the, the truth of the matter is, is that if Ezekiel had words to describe this scene, he would describe a scene of utter glory and splendor. You would look at this and be stunned by its beauty. Words fail. Words come across like hideous, ugly, scary, frightening And what Ezekiel is simply trying to describe is glories there are no words to describe. This glorious God seated on His throne will go wherever He wills. He sees this vision in Babylon. And we come then to chapter 8 where he sees a similar vision of God enthroned on this chariot throne of sorts these cherubs that move about in the throne of God above them and the glory of God being lifted and taken in various places wherever God desires now Ezekiel is is in Babylon and he's meeting with the leadership that's there of the exiles in Babylon and in chapter 8 of Ezekiel, God proves to Ezekiel the depths of Israel's rebellion against the Lord. Perhaps he was hearing from these leaders that can't be that bad. Israel can't be that corrupt. 
God's got to have some space in here to forgive them. They haven't rebelled to the degree that it demands judgment and the loss of Jerusalem and this city and all that God has gained. Certainly, Israel is not that evil. God demonstrates Israel's evil to Ezekiel in chapter 8, beginning with verse 1. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, that is of his exile, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. Then I looked, and behold, a form that had the appearance of a man. Below what appeared to be his waist was fire, and above what appeared to be his waist was something like the appearance of the brightness, like gleaming metal. He put out the form of a hand, and he took me by a lock of my head, and the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem. So picture Ezekiel. He's in his house. The elders are gathered. They want a word from the Lord. They are seeking him. What is God saying? What is the future of our history as a nation? How do we take this? While with them, Ezekiel receives a vision, a sort of trance-like state in which he is whisked away in spirit to Jerusalem. I don't think there was pain as he's being carried by his hair over these hundreds of miles. It's a vision. He's floating through the air, leaving Babylon, and he comes to Jerusalem in this trance-like, dream-like state as God reveals truth to him in that state. And he comes to the city, to the city of Jerusalem. Verse 3, continuing. To the entrance, in fact, of the gateway of the inner court that faces north, where was the seat of the image of jealousy which provokes to jealousy. So Ezekiel is shown here an image, that is an idol, which has been set up in the temple courts. You want to talk about infidelity, here it is. This image provokes to jealousy. What does that mean? It provokes to jealousy in this sense. God sees this and is moved to jealousy. He has a loyal love for Israel. He knows that he alone is God and that Israel's joy is found only in him. And here is this idol in the very temple where Israel was to pursue God. God is filled with a holy jealousy. We hear from time to time, some even experience, it's a horror of our human world, but just tag in for a moment to walking into a place and finding your mate in the arms of a lover. It's a horrifying scene. Multiply that almost infinitely. And that's how God sees this idol. This is the evidence of deep-seated infidelity. And it moves him to jealousy. I am Israel's husband. I am Israel's father. I am Israel's God. And there is no other. 
And so this image provokes God to that type of holy jealousy. It is a product of the intensity of His love for His people. Verse 5, Then He said to me, Son of man, lift up your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted up my eyes toward the north, and behold, north of the altar gate, North of the altar gate in the entrance was this image of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me far from my sanctuary. Do you see this? My sanctuary, my holy place, the place that I have established here on this hill for the people to come and to pursue me here in this place, going through this northern gate into the temple area. You come there and there's an image. Do you see this abomination? Here is evidence of Israel's sin. And the key idea here is in the glory of God bringing glory to God, this physical shining presence of God indeed. As we see that there in verse 4, God provoked to jealousy, but the glory of the Lord of Israel is there in this place where there are competing loves. Verse 7, And He brought me to the entrance of the court, and when I looked, behold, there was a hole in the wall, Then he said to me, Son of man, dig in the wall. So I dug in the wall, and behold, there was an entrance. And he said to me, Go in and see the vile abominations that they are committing there. So I went in and saw, and there engraved on the wall all around was every form of creeping things and loathsome beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel. And before them stood seventy men of the elders of the house of Israel, with the Jeniah, the son of Shephan, and standing among them, each had his censer in his hand, and the smoke of the cloud of incense went up. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing? So just to get the picture, there's in one of these walls, and there's probably a, uh, some sort of room, gathering place that we don't know about in Solomon's temple, but there's a, there's a hole in the wall built of stone, and so he's probably pulling out pieces of stone, making the hole a little builder, the hole bigger. The whole point is he's getting into a place he couldn't see from outside. And when he gets into this place, what he sees is images all over the wall and idols in this room. And it's probably illumined by candles and there are censers creating this uh, ritualistic smoke that's in this place. And in this room, in this place of idolatry and abomination are all the leaders of Israel. All the representative heads of the entire nation are here in this depraved moment. And Ezekiel sees them. Verse 12, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark? Each in his room of pictures. For they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. This room of pictures, this darkness that's referred to, is probably referring to one of these smaller rooms in the temple complex. There would have been no windows in these rooms. 
And digging through to get into this place, he sees these elders worshiping false gods. And the Lord does not see us, is their rationale. We're in the dark, we are hidden, we are away, and what does it matter? God is gone anyway. We can pursue whatever our heart desires, we can do whatever we want in the darkness of this moment, because there's no God protecting us, helping us, or holding us accountable. That's their thinking. It reminds us that the presence of godly people deters sinful behavior. There are things we may say or do outside this assembly that we would never say or do in it. But get away from God's people, get away from mom and dad, and it's a lot easier to sin. But let's take it a step further. Enter a situation that God seems to have abandoned. Get into a place where everyone is actively doing what is wrong. And it gets even easier to sin. The resistance to sin can vanish. Unless we are by faith awake to the reality that God is always present and the Lord of every inch of the universe at all times. It's here where our faith must come to the fore. People of great faith are revered, not so much for serving God in the presence of His people as for serving God in their absence. It's here that our faith is tested. It is when we serve God in the dark. When the world stands against us. When our faith in God is revealed. That's where it's revealed. For what it truly is, is when there's no support but God Himself. These in a darkened room with hideous pictures worshiping the false gods of this world, it's not far from us in our day. In some places, literally, in our places, figuratively, fighting temptation on our own is hard. But let's remember that our faith is tested here at church, and it is tested when mom and dad are around, but our faith is ultimately tested when we're alone in the dark when we're by ourselves, or when we are around unsaved friends that are all pulling in one direction, or when workmates unite against God's way, that's where faith is really seen. Now again, it's seen with godly people, and we want to bring godly people into our lives to develop the accountability and the help that is rightly there. That's a good thing but you will find yourself in a place where you're the only Christian. You will find yourself in a place where you are alone, the only resistance against your evil desires. It's in those places, remember this, God is there as well. He's always there. And it reminds us of Daniel here in Babylon as he stood against what seemed like pervasive opposition when everyone was against him when they said to Daniel you will not pray to your God 
he got down on his knees, as was his routine, and three times a day prayed. Because with all the pressure that was around him, he saw by faith that there is one true and living God, and he is everywhere. These men of Israel had entirely thrown that away. God was gone. Now, what an irrational, ridiculous thing to think. God is gone. All right, let's run with that. Why not pray that he'll return? But this is the irrationality of sin. If God is gone, then I have the freedom to do what I want to do. If God is gone, then I choose a different idol, and I worship that idol. How foolish it is, but this was irrational. They had foolishly concluded that since God seems to be gone, He is gone. And rather than mourn His absence or pray for His return, they worship these false gods. Sadly, Ezekiel adds then in verse 13, He said also to me, you will see still greater abominations that they commit. Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord. And behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. Then he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? You will see still greater abominations than these. Tammuz, an Akkadian god, an ancient fertility god, worshipped with licentious fertility festivals here in the temple area. There they are, worshipping this false god but he's going to see more. Verse 16, And he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord, and behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, that is the brazen altar, the place where sacrifices were offered, there were about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east worshiping the sun toward the east. This is perhaps obvious to you. Some maybe haven't thought about this, but do you know the temple was oriented purposefully so that you would always enter with your back to the sun. So many of the ancient peoples worshiped the sun. And so it was oriented that your back was to the sun. Here are representatives of Israel, leaders of the nation. They have their back to the glory of God. Standing in this inner temple area, their back is to the glory in the inner sanctum and their face is toward the sun that they worship. The conclusion and the judgment, verse 17. Then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations that they commit here, that they should fill the land with violence and provoke me still further to anger? Behold, they put the branch to their nose or put the branch to my nose. We have no idea what that means. It's a figure of speech. Take some of our figures of speech and just imagine that the context gets lost, which it does. We lose all idea what was even said there. We don't know what this means. Put the branch to the nose. All kinds of conjecture. Everybody admits we don't know what it means. But what we do know is God's anger has been provoked and they have sinned. 
in rebellion that is deep. Therefore, verse 18, I will act in wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. The time for mercy is past. The second movement, God judges the unfaithful in Jerusalem. Chapter 9, verse 1, Then they cried in my ears with a loud voice, saying... So they're going to cry in God's ears and not be heard. But then He cried in my ears with a loud voice, saying, Bring near the executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. The city, think again. God had over centuries of time raised up this city where His glory would dwell. Of this city He has spoken from ancient days and now God is going to crumble the city that He's built. Send executioners out. He directs for the judgment of the city. Verse 2, Behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate which faces north each with his weapon for slaughter in his hand. And with them was a man clothed in linen with a writing case at his waist. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. So six angels, seven, serving the seventh serving as a recorder of the judgment that is to fall on Jerusalem. Visionary. Dreamlike. But the point is really clear. What's happening? Notice verse 3 then. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. That's not where God's glory is supposed to be. It's to be in the inner sanctum, but now it has come out to this doorway into the temple. It's outside the house. It's gone up from the cherubs. That means it has come off of the throne And this glorious presence of God standing there is now going to address the situation. So the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from off the cherub on which it rested, and he called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing case at his waist. Verse 4, And the Lord said to him, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it, And to the others he said in his hearing, in my hearing, pass through the city after him and strike. Your eyes shall not spare and you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the house. Then he said to them, defile the house and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. So they went out and struck in the city. And while they were striking and I was left alone, I fell upon my face and cried, Ah, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in the outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? So the mark is to identify those who are not part of this rebellion against God. The people who are destroyed, not literally by these angels, but by the Babylonian army. But the point is clear, God could stop the armies of Babylon. He is not going to do so. His mercies have run to an end, and it is now time for judgment to begin at the household of God. 
It's a horrible scene. And Ezekiel, as only any loving human being could do, cries out to God and says, will you destroy all? Will you not spare the remnant? Of course, he has to some degree as this mark on the forehead of some. But he says to me, verse 9, the guilt of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of blood, the city full of injustice. For they say the Lord has forsaken the land, the Lord does not see. As for me, my eye will not spare. He sees. Nor will I have pity. I will bring their deeds upon their heads. Ezekiel takes the role, in a sense, of Abraham as he pleads for Sodom. Will you not spare the city because of the few? But God says, sparing this city is over. I've spared it for so long. It's time to deconstruct. To bring it down. What a horror. God's holiness allows no other options. Verse 9 And verse 10, Behold, the man clothed in linen, verse 11, with the writing case at his waist, brought back words, saying, I have done as you commanded me. The horror is not ended. The destruction of the city will come. But in the third movement, chapters 10 and 11, God's glory abandons the temple and the holy hill. God's glory abandons the hill. Verse 1, Then I looked, and behold, on the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, there appeared above them something like a sapphire in appearance like a throne. And he said to the man clothed in linen, Go in among the whirling wheels underneath the cherubim. Fill your hands with burning coals from between the cherubim and scatter them over the city, burning the city in a sense. And he went in before my eyes, and the cherubim were standing on the south side of the house, and the man went in, and a cloud filled the inner court. And the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house, and the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. And the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard as far as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when He speaks. The glory is on the move. We read of that earlier this morning as the glory cloud moves, Israel is to move, but Israel can't move from here. This is the permanent residence of the glory of God, but it's on the move. What is happening? This isn't where the glory belongs, but it remains here at the threshold giving commands for judgment. Verse 6, and when he commanded the man clothed in linen, take fire from between the whirling wheels, from between the cherubim, he went in and stood beside a wheel And a cherub stretched out his hand from between the cherubim to the fire that was between the cherubim. And he took some of it and put it into the hands of the man clothed in linen who took it and went out. The cherubim appeared to have the form of a human hand under their wings. And now what is going to follow is a description again of their appearance, which we found in chapter 1, which is beyond words to describe the glory that they have and these whirling wheels and the movement and the direction that they take. Verse 15, And the cherubim mounted up. They were the living creatures that I saw at the Cheber Canal, that is, back in Babylon. And when the cherubim went, the wheels went beside them. And when the cherubim lifted up their wings to mount up from the earth. The wheels did not turn from beside them. When they stood still, they stood still. And when they mounted up, they mounted up with them for the spirit of the living creatures was in them. The whole point is they're moving. 
verse 18, And the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherry beam. And the cherry beam lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went, and the wheels beside them, and they stood. I mean, this is just utterly horrifying if we get it. They stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. Not in the inner sanctum. The glory is leaving. It's ik avod, the departure of the glory. These are the same living creatures, verse 20. I saw underneath the God of Israel by the Cheber Canal, and I knew that they were cherry beam. Each had four faces, each four wings, and underneath their wings the likeness of human hands, and as for the likeness of their faces, they were the same faces whose appearance I had seen by the Cheber Canal. Each one of them went straight forward. This is God's chariot. He's just stressing the point. We must skip to verse 22 of chapter 11. 22:11. Uh, I'm sorry, 11:22. 11:22. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. What is the mountain on the east side of the city? We're looking here from the south. We're standing in the south looking northward. So that box in the middle of the graphic is the temple area. It is built up. And uh, what we're seeing here is a later picture of the fill of the uh, later temple of Herod's temple, but in this basic area, you see the, the smaller box on top and sort of a visual of where the hill would have been originally and where it was with Solomon's temple. The glory is hovering now over the eastern gate, looking toward or heading toward the Mount of Olives to the east. And as it's left to stand there in Ezekiel's vision, Babylon will sack the city, will destroy the temple in 586. And having seen this vision, Ezekiel is now returned to Babylon where he reports to the exiles, verses 24 and 25. I told the exiles all the things that the Lord had shown me, and it is tragedy. Utter tragedy. The glory of the God that led Israel out of Egypt. The glory of the God of God that had descended upon Mount Sinai. The glory of God that came down off that mountain and dwelt in the tabernacle. The glory of God that led Israel through the desert. The glory of God that then filled the temple of Solomon saying, this is the place. This glory now hovers over the Mount of Olives. It's off the temple. It's gone. In this devastating vision, God's people learn that the mountain of hope has been twice lost. Jerusalem, 
will become the domain of the Babylonians, people who rage against God. And secondly, the glory cloud has abandoned the house of God. This is nothing less than a history-altering disaster, a seeming death blow to God's salvation plan. How will the glory of God be seen by Israel? Where will they be brought back to from their scattering among the nations? And how will the glory of God be seen by the nations? One of the major purposes of this temple was for the nations to find their way here to the light of God. They have no other light. How will they find it? All is despair on the holy mount. Ezekiel reports to God's captive people that all is despair. And we stand aghast. But as we do, I think it is right for us to lock into now the larger purposes of God just for a few moments and to even connect them to our little stories. On a personal level, we get a taste of such disaster more than we want in this fallen world where everything falls apart. The plan is broken. Everything is shattered. Everything that was so good, we think of that glory filling this temple, God identifying this place, and the people of Israel leaving from the feast that Solomon provided. All calm and all bright. And then we come here, and it's gone. We face those moments in our own personal lives as well. And I'll come back to the bigger purposes in a moment, but just as a sideline, there are moments in life when disaster strikes and you know your life will never be the same again. Ever. An infant is lost in childbirth. A family's home is reduced to ashes in a forest fire. A divorce rips a family to shreds. A friend betrays your trust. Life will never be the same again. And then there are those historical moments when everything goes wrong. The world that emerges is forever changed. An army suffers a devastating defeat. A president is assassinated. A famine brings a nation to its knees. And on and on it goes in this fallen world. But most devastating of all of these are times when God seems to dismantle all that He Himself has worked so hard to accomplish in His saving purposes. How could God dismantle all that He had done to secure this place? How could the earth endure the loss of this city to God's purposes and the departure of His glory? How could this work? And we find ourselves individually asking this as well in our lives at times. How can this possibly work? It's all devastation. Well, let me bring you back to the merchant couple for just a moment. This simple couple in their walled city, long after they have raised their family, sometimes after, sometime after their bodies no longer permitted them to work. This husband and wife reminisce with their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren at a family gathering. And as talk in the family always came back, they begin to get their laughs at the king who always knocked things over to build them up better. But as the conversation quiets, 
the old couple agrees together. But you know, every time the city was wrecked, every time an earthquake harmed it, every time an army destroyed it, and you know we've got to admit, every time the king tore down what seemed so good, every single time he rebuilt better. The glory was gone. Jerusalem was lost. The mountain of hope twice lost. The glory gone, the city gone. But whenever our king deconstructs his city, it is always to build it better. If this is true of salvation history, if this is true of the grand picture, and we'll return to that in just a moment, but it's also an indicator of how this glorious God works in each of our lives individually. Christian, can we fail to see this? This isn't just a story about some odd vision that really doesn't touch our lives. This touches our lives most directly. Do we fail to see in the light of this grand story that God specializes in rebuilding better? It's in His DNA. Whenever He deconstructs, it's going to get built better. And the conclusion that we draw, not naively, but because of trust in this great God, is that no trial in your life is failing to work a greater weight of glory. He's told us this in His Word. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 17, whatever affliction we face, whatever trial His people run into, wherever that devastation comes and life will never be the same again, there God has His building purposes and it's to make it better. We may not like it, It may not feel good at all. We may feel wounded for the rest of our lives in this place. But when we enter into His presence, sin is gone and the blinders come off and we say every moment of suffering He rebuilt into greater glory for eternity. And it's when we're in the dark that that's hardest to believe. Which is why we come together as God's people to announce His promises, to remember His kindnesses to us in Christ, to remember the grand story. And if He can bring all of that together, He certainly will keep His promise to us as individuals. If all seems devastation and loss and destruction and never to be the same again, know that there you are fighting a battle of faith that's very understandable and by God's grace, winnable. We always trust Him when He deconstructs to build better because that's who He is. Everything is lost, it seems. The glory has gone. The place, 1,600 years in the making. And God takes it out because of Israel's sin. But He is not done. And the reconstruction project is underway. 
as the book of Ezekiel bears out, and read it this afternoon. It'll be one of the hardest books you've ever read in your life if you've never read it, but it's confusing sometimes. But you can see where it's tracking. It's coming back here. It's coming back to this place. God has, it has destroyed it in one sense, but the foundations remain. The location re- remains. God's highest glory will be served. The problem as we tag into this story again is when God's glory is not our highest interest, we turn quickly to idols, health and wealth and security and ease of circumstances and pride. And God is not going to help us with that. When we turn to these false idols and we say, come on, kick in, give me what I want, fix my life, bring it back to where I wanted it to be, He's not going to help us with that. He's going to build and He's going to construct something deeper, greater, and more glorious. And we need to go with His program. We say that of ourselves, knowing He'll leave us in our dark room with our idols until we turn to embrace His glory as the quest of life. But as we see this big picture, His glory is that thing, is that quest. And So back to that larger picture. We are assured through the rest of this book that God will restore Jerusalem. And as Zechariah tells us in 14 and verse 4, it's amazing. But the God who constructs the salvation plan says the feet of Jesus Christ are going to come back and touch that hill, the Mount of Olives, when He restores all and centers His glory here. And the last words of this prophecy are that in that city, Its name is, the Lord is here. The glory will come back. Lord, we pray, as we scratch the surface of such a deep book and such an amazing vision, we pray that you'll help us to grasp all that we can. We ask that you will help us to apply to our own lives the wonder and and the mercies of your glory as our chief end to live for the glory of your name that we might know the joy that you intend. Lord, some are going through hard times and dark moments when it seems that everything is lost. May we lock into this greater account and realize that you will serve the glory of your name for the good of your people forever and that you are doing that construction work even amidst the deconstruction work in our individual lives as well. Draw to the beauty of your glory anyone who knows not Christ, we pray. For those who do, may we rejoice and put our faith and our hope in you alone. Through Christ we pray.